which the Holy Spirit applies to them experimentally. Their emancipation from Egypt figured our redemption from the bondage of sin, redeemed from your vain conversation or manner of living, 1 Peter 1.18. Christ died not only to save his people from hell, but also to deliver us from this present evil world, Galatians 1.4. Such inestimable blessings carry with them immense obligations. The claims of God upon his people are infinitely greater than those he has upon the wicked. And not but divine grace can enable us to answer our obligations and meet his claims. What these are we shall now consider. Number one, fear the Lord. Of the unregenerate it is said, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.18 They have no respect for His authority, no concern for His glory, no love for His law. But concerning the righteous we are told, Surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before Him. Ecclesiastes 8.12 And why? Because the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 8.13 And by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Proverbs 16.6 Thus, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 For without it man is a consummate fool on a lower level than the beasts which perish. For the ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. Isaiah 1.3 But the wicked own not the voice of their maker. To fear the Lord is for the heart to be deeply impressed by his awful majesty, his immeasurable power, his ineffable holiness. It is to stand in reverent awe of him, If the seraphim veil their faces in his presence, Isaiah 6, 2, how much more ought worms of the earth bow in the dust before him? To fear the Lord is to tremble at the very thought of knowingly opposing him. It is to have the utmost respect for every revelation of his imperial will. When the father of Isaac obeyed the divine command to lay his beloved son on the altar of sacrifice, the Lord said, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Genesis 22.12 And this godly fear which is required from us, compare Acts 9.31, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, and 1 Peter 1.17 is not to be spasmodic and occasional, but as Proverbs 23.17 says, Be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Then what cause have we to cry daily? Unite my heart to fear thy name. 
Psalm 86, 11. Observe well the opening word of our text. Only fear the Lord. If the fear of the Lord is truly upon our hearts, everything else will, so to speak, take care of itself. If the fear of the Lord be upon us, pride will be abased, self-will and self-seeking will be subdued, and the evil whisperings of Satan will have no power over us. If the fear of the Lord be upon us, we shall be delivered from the fear of man, as we shall be quite indifferent whether or not we please him. If the fear of the Lord be upon us, doubtings and questionings of our salvation will be at an end. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. Proverbs 14.26 The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Psalm 25.14 Number 2 And serve Him. Yes, Him. Not self, not sin, not our fellows. God is the only one who has any real claims upon us. For He is our Creator, our Owner, our Lord. Him we are commanded under pain of everlasting woe to serve, not simply believe in Him, pray to Him, but be in complete subjection to Him. His will is to be our law, His commands, the regulator of our ways. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4.10 We cannot serve two masters, as Christ affirmed, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6.24 Note well that this call to serve the Lord comes after fear Him. We cannot truly serve Him unless His fear be upon us. Any so-called service which flows not from a reverent awe of God is only the restless energy of the flesh putting itself into action. Serve Him in truth. What is meant by this? At least three things. First, the Lord is to be served in sincerity, not in pretense. A form of godliness, no matter how precise and punctilious, is of no avail in His sight if the power of it be lacking. Second, the Lord requires to be served in reality, not in mere lip profession. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.18 Nothing is more vain than an empty formality. 
Third, in a scriptural way. Thy word is truth. John 17:17. 17, 17. To serve the Lord in truth is the opposite of following the fashions of the day or the inclinations of our hearts. It is an obedient walk regulated by the divine precepts. With all your heart. Ah, it is at the heart that God looks and not merely at the outward appearance as does man. His great requirement is, My son, give me thine heart. Proverbs 23.26 We do not find him until we search for him with all our hearts. Jeremiah 29.13 He bids us, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Proverbs 3, 5 He commands us to love him with all the heart. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. So, he demands that we shall serve him with a perfect heart. First Chronicles 28, 9 Of Rehoboam it is said, And he did evil, because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Second Chronicles 12:14. To serve the Lord with all the heart means with undivided affections. It is the opposite of a double heart. First Chronicles 12:33. Of old God complained against Israel. Their heart is divided. Hosea 10:2. God requires the throne of our hearts that he may reign over us, that we may be out and out for him with no reserve, nothing kept back. Whoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Luke fourteen thirty three. Number three. For consider... How great things he hath done for you. This is the motive. We are to fear and serve him in truth with all our hearts. Not that we may gain the reputation of being very spiritual people. Not in order to escape the everlasting burnings. But because of what the Lord has done for us. Let the realization of that be the mainspring of action. Let the remembrance of that move you to fear and serve Him wholeheartedly. That is the only motive which God will accept, a daily life lived to please Him out of gratitude for what He has done for you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Romans 12.1 God's claims upon us are founded upon what he has done for us. Our obligations are measured by the blessings which we have received from him. Consider 
what great things he hath done for you. You, an insignificant worm of the earth, Isaiah 41, 14, a mere grasshopper, Isaiah 40, 22, you, a vile sinner with no good in you by nature, Romans 7, 18, you, who merit nothing at his hands but untempered judgment. Yet, instead of casting you into hell years ago, what has he done for you? Preserved your worthless life these many years, showered his daily blessings upon you, and supplied your every need. And if truly saved, has delivered you from the wrath to come, given you a place in his family nearer to himself than that which the holy angels will occupy, made you an heir of everlasting glory. Oh, that our hearts may be so melted by the realization of his amazing grace that the love of Christ shall constrain us to fear and serve him in truth with all our hearts. For consider what great things he hath done for you. Turn them over and over in your mind. Dwell on them frequently. As the man of the world is constantly scheming how to make money or how to have a good time, his whole heart being wrapped up in such things, so do you make it your chief business to be occupied with the wonders of God. Set your affection on things above. Many a person on the beach shivers and is miserable while he is only paddling in the waters. Not till he plunges right in does he really enjoy himself. So it is in connection with the things of God. So long as they have a subordinate and secondary place in our thoughts and lives, we do not really delight ourselves in the Lord. Give thyself wholly to them. First Timothy 4.15 is a word which each Christian needs to lay to heart. If you be a real Christian, what are the great things which the Lord has done for you? Set his heart upon you. Loved you from all eternity. Jeremiah 31.3 Written your name in the Lamb's book of life. Luke 10.20 Spared not his own son, but delivered him up to the cross to atone for your sins. Romans 8.32 sent the Holy Spirit into your heart to regenerate and raise you up into newness of life. Galatians 4, 6. Given you an unfailing lamp unto your feet and light unto your path. Psalm 119, 105. To direct your steps through this dark world. 2 Peter 1, 19 granted you even now access to his throne of grace, that there 
you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 Blessed you with his abiding presence, as he did Daniel in the lion's den, promising never to leave nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 Assured you that in a soon coming day you shall be done with sin forever. Hebrews 9.28 Be made like Christ. 1 John 3.2 And spend eternity with him. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Beholding his glory. Oh, my brethren and sisters, the things mentioned are indeed great. Then surely we ought to consider them day and night. We should consider them prayerfully, begging God to make them more real and precious to our hearts, that we may so consider them as to be transformed by them. Second Corinthians 3.18 that they may order all the details of our lives to His glory. The more they are so considered, the easier and the more blessed will it be to fear and serve Him in truth. Then shall we find that all wisdom's ways are pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Proverbs 3.17 for his commandments are not grievous, first on five three, they are so to the unregenerate, but not to those who have tasted that the Lord is gracious. But what if we do not fear and serve the Lord in truth with all our hearts? That will prove that our profession is vain, that we are yet in our sins. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 4 Make no mistake on this point, my hearer. All around us are those who profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, and such are said to be abominable. Titus 1.16 And what shall be their end? This. But if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed. 1 Samuel 12.25 If they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Hebrews 12.25 May the Lord deign to add His blessing, and to Him shall be all the praise. Arthur Pink Study number 5 Unrewarded Labor 1 Corinthians 3.15 There are few verses in the New Testament, which have been more misunderstood and misapplied, fatally so in many cases, we fear, than these. In circles where dispensational truth has been made prominent, the popular concept which obtains is 
that this passage teaches there is a class of Christians who have completely forfeited their reward, yet who will enter heaven, that these have no good works to their credit, but are nevertheless truly saved. This evil doctrine has been widely propagated the last two generations, and few indeed have been the voices raised in protest. It has been advocated by so many Bible teachers, in quotes, with a reputation for orthodoxy, and has met with such a general acceptance that for anyone now to challenge it is to court the being branded as an heretic. Notwithstanding, the servant of God must not fear the frowns of men, but proclaim that which he is assured makes most for the glory of God and the good of his people. To affirm that 1 Corinthians 3.15 signifies there is a class of God's children whose works shall all be burned up is to fly in the face of the analogy of faith. To insist this passage means that the lives of some who have been regenerated, who are indwelt by the Spirit and led of Him, Romans 8.14, are nevertheless destitute of all good works is to blaspheme the one who performed a miracle of grace in the hearts of his own, and comes perilously nigh to committing the unpardonable sin against him who makes the bodies of his people his temples. We are far from saying that those who have advanced this dangerous delusion were conscious of the dreadful implications thereof. Nevertheless, that was the vile motive of the great enemy, who is the real author of it. And it behooves the watchman on Zion's walls to sound the alarm and expose the designs of our foe. Not only is the popular interpretation of 1 Corinthians 3.15 highly insulting to each person of the Godhead, but it is flatly contradicted by a number of plain passages in Holy Writ. Ephesians 2.10 declares that those who are saved by grace through faith are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should not ought to walk in them. What could be plainer than that? Those who are not walking in good works have never been born again. In Philippians 1.6, the Christian is assured that he which hath begun a good work in you will finish it. Whom God justifies, he sanctifies. Where he turns a heart toward himself, he directs its possessor into the paths of righteousness. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? James 2.20 Verily, there is nothing new under the sun. Even in James' days, there were men who imagined that they possessed a saving faith, but who were without those works of obedience which are its inseparable and necessary evidence. Is it not evident, then, 
that 1 Corinthians 3.15 does not signify what is commonly supposed. God's holy word does not contradict itself. It does not affirm in one passage that without holiness no man shall see the Lord, Hebrews 12.14, and in another that a man may live an unholy life and yet be taken to heaven. Christ did not insist that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20 And then move his servant Paul to announce that some whose daily conduct fell far below that of the Pharisees were nevertheless saved. No, the teaching of Scripture is uniform and harmonious. And if we are unable to see the consistency of one passage with another, the fault lies in us. Prejudice or carnality is at work. We may know for certain that if our interpretation of any verse clashes with the plain meaning of another, it is erroneous. Oh, how much we need to prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 If then 1 Corinthians 3.15 does not teach what so many have sought to bring out of it, what is its real signification? The answer is not far to obtain if due attention be paid to its context. Yet let it be pointed out that care must be taken in order to be sure we go back far enough so as to ascertain the scope of the whole passage. It is at this point so many expositors have erred. It is almost impossible to understand the subject which is here under discussion if we begin only at verse 11 which is the prevailing habit these days. If we are to perceive aright the force of verses 11 to 15, attention must be paid to verses 1 to 10, so as to discover what is the subject which the Apostle is here treating of. At the beginning of this third chapter, the Apostle returns to his charge of schisms and contentions among the Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 11, which was the principal occasion of his writing this epistle. He reproves them for their divisions, sad manifestations of their carnality, which were about their ministers, and points out that there was nothing in them in which to glory. Some of them were calling themselves by the name of Paul, for which reason and for none other he thanked God he had baptized so few of them. 1 Corinthians 1, 14-16 Others were exalting Apollos as the head of their party, which shows how fleshly they were. Verse 4 In view of this, the apostle faithfully and humbly reminded them that both himself and Apollos were but ministers, servants, by whom ye believed. Verse 5. He had merely planted, and Apollos had simply watered. But God was the one 
who gave the increase. Verse 6. Then the conclusion is drawn, Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, unless God deigned to employ them and bless their labors. Verse 7. What madness was it then to glory in the mere instrument? Thus it is clear beyond a doubt that the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 3 treat of the official ministry of the public servants of God. The same theme is continued in the verses which immediately follow. This is clear from Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Verse 8 Though there is diversity in the nature of the work of God's servants, one evangelistic, one teaching, and so forth, yet their commission is from the same Master, their motive, to glorify the same God, their aim, the good of souls. Thus, as fellow laborers, it was sinful folly to array them one against another. It is unfortunate that the next words of verse 8 have been translated, and every man shall receive his own reward. Literally, the Greek signifies, but each of Christ's appointed servants, his own reward shall receive. And so the word man should be one throughout the whole passage as Christ has distributed different gifts to his ministers and allotted unto them a diversity of ministry, so they are rewarded accordingly. For God's we are, fellow workers, God's husbandry, God's building ye are. Verse 9, Baxter's Interlinea. True ministers of the gospel are laborers, not loiterers, in the Lord's vineyard, fellow laborers, whether evangelists, pastors, or teachers. God's husbandry are the elect. He it is who breaks up the fallow ground of their hearts, cast in the seed of grace, makes the ground good, and causes it to bring forth fruit. God's building too, believers in a church state, are the house in which God dwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Note carefully that this second metaphor or figure is carried forward into verse 12 and helps to interpret that verse. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every one take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Verse 10. In the opening clause, the apostle ascribes to the grace of God all his ministerial gifts and the success granted. In what follows, he reminds the Corinthians that he was the one who had first preached the gospel to them. 
being the initial instrument of their conversion. The foundation which he had ministerially laid was what he had taught them concerning the person and work of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. The another who built thereon was Apollos. Upon the final words of the verse, Charles Hodge rightly said, In the whole context, he is speaking of ministers, and therefore this clause must be considered as a warning to them. They are to take heed how, i.e., with what materials they carried on the building of this spiritual temple. For other foundations can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Here again, there is nothing whatever in the Greek to justify the word man. It is anyone, that is, any builder or servant of God, anyone who edifies. There is no other foundation to ministerially lay than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Observe particularly how that In Ephesians 2.20, the New Testament saints are said to be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner. That is, are doctrinally built upon the ministry of the apostles and prophets. Verse 12. Again, the proper rendering is anyone. In the light of the context, this must refer to the preaching of those who present Christ as the only basis of the sinner's hope. In Scripture, gold is an emblem of the divine glory. Silver speaks of redemption. And precious stones are the scintillators of light. Those doctrines which magnify the character of God which exemplify and amplify the redemption of Christ and which are under the Spirit channels of illumination to the hearer is what is here in view. Such doctrines are of intrinsic worth and importance, are pure and precious to the regenerated and are durable and lasting in their effects. Contrarywise, Wood, hay, stubble point to empty and useless ministry, which edifies not. Verse 13. The doctrine or ministry of each preacher will sooner or later be made manifest, both to himself and his hearers. It needs no great length of time for a discerning mind to discover whether or not the blessing of God rests upon the preacher's labors, whether sinners are really being turned from Satan to God and from sin to holiness, whether saints are becoming more unworldly, more self-denying, more Christ-like. True, there is much seeming goodness, which is as a morning cloud and as the early dew it goeth away, Hosea 6.4, but the fire 
shall try everyone's work. There is nothing in the passage which requires us to project this into the distant future. That blunts its present searching point. The day and the fire most probably has reference to a day of testing and tribulation, being parallel with Matthew 13:21. Faith must be tested in this life. Grace must be put to the proof. Even a mild storm of persecution is usually enough to divide the sheep from the goats and serves to identify the truly regenerated. See 1 Corinthians 11.19 Verse 14 If any minister's doctrine will bear the test of daylight, holy writ, and abide the trial of opposition, if it has been truly built upon the one foundation of the person and offices of Christ, that is, if it be consistent therewith, he shall receive a reward now by seeing the sheep of his flock growing in grace and walking in the truth. Philippians 4, 1 and 3 John 4 And also in the future, when Christ himself shall commend his faithful servants. Matthew twenty five twenty one. Verse 15 If any minister's preaching failed to stand the test of Scripture and the providential trials of God, then shall its worthlessness be manifested to those with spiritual discernment and be repudiated by Christ. The reference here is to the figure of the wood, hay, stubble, which must not be understood of fundamental error, for it is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, it is the materials the preacher uses. It is the stooping unto enticing words of man's wisdom, oratorical effect, relying upon anecdotes or jokes to move the emotions instead of the sword of the Spirit, largely supplanting the foolishness of preaching by the aesthetic charms of music resorting to worldly methods to attract a crowd, and so forth, which are here in view. He shall suffer loss. All his fleshly labors will produce no fruit for eternity. Because he was himself a regenerated man, fundamentally sound on the person of Christ, he shall be saved, yet so as by fire i.e., with difficulty. 1 Peter 4.17 and Jude 23. To sum up, 1 Corinthians 3.5-15 does not treat of the rank and file of God's people, but of His official and public servants. The works referred to have nothing to do with the details of our walk but respect materials and methods used by saved ministers of the gospel. This passage no more teaches that it is possible for a man who has no good works to his account to go to heaven than it holds out any hope that a modernist who teaches fundamental error is a regenerated man.
that the popular interpretation of the passage is so widely accepted only goes to show the low state of spirituality which now prevails. To give people the impression that no matter how spiritually fruitless their lives may be, yet if they are resting on the finished work of Christ, they are sure of heaven, is a lie of the devil, and only eternity will show how many have been fatally deceived by it. Make no mistake, my hearer, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 The only satisfactory evidence that you are truly resting in Christ is a daily walk which is pleasing to Him. Arthur Pink Study number 6 the narrow way. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Matthew seven, thirteen and 14. The second half of Matthew 7 forms the applicatory part of that most important discourse of our Lord's, known as the Sermon on the Mount. One leading design of that sermon was to show the spiritual nature and wide extent of that obedience which characterizes the true subjects of Christ's kingdom, and which obedience is absolutely necessary for the enjoyment of that ultimate state of blessedness which divine grace has provided for them. As the prophet of God, Christ made known that the righteousness which obtains in his kingdom greatly exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the Jews imagined that they were all of them the subjects of the Messiah's kingdom that by virtue of their descent from Abraham, they were the rightful heirs of it, that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that system of religious and moral duty taught by them, met all the requirements of God's law. But this delusion the Lord Jesus here exposed, fleshly descent from Abraham, could not give title unto a spiritual kingdom. That which was merely natural was no qualification for the supernatural realm. Only they were accounted the true children of Abraham who had his faith, Romans 4.16, who did his works, John 8.39, and who were united to Christ, Galatians 3.29. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord delineated the inward state of those who belonged to his spiritual kingdom, chapter 5, verses 4 to 11, described the outward conduct by which they might be identified, verses 13 to 16, expounded the personal righteousness which God's justice demanded, chapter 17, verse 28, 
and to find that utter repudiation of sin which he required from his people. Verses 29 and 30. So high are the demands of the thrice holy one, so uncompromising are the requirements of his ineffable character, that none can dwell with him eternally who do not in time loathe, resist, and turn from all that is repulsive to his pure eye. Nothing short of the complete denying of self, the abandoning of the dearest idol, the forsaking of the most cherished sinful course, figuratively represented under the cutting off of a right hand and the plucking out of a right eye, is what he claims from everyone who would have communion with himself. Such plain and pointed declarations of Christ must have seemed hard sayings to the multitudes who listened to him. Such piercing and flesh-withering demands would probably cause many of his Jewish hearers to think within themselves, who then can be saved? This is indeed a straight gate and a narrow way. Anticipating their secret objections, the Lord plainly declared that the gate unto salvation is straight, and the way which leadeth unto life is narrow. Yet he went on to point out, It is your wisdom, your interest, your duty to enter that gate and walk that way. He acknowledged and faithfully warned to them that there was a wide gate soliciting their entrance and a broad road inviting them to walk therein. But that gate leads to perdition. That road ends in hell. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.